Hello, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings, and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, by clicking the Donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. In the, the Satipatthana Sutta, the Satipatthana Sutta is the original discourse that the Buddha gave on the four foundations of mindfulness. It's the root of a lot of modern mindfulness, and, and especially what we do here today. And in these, this discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness, there, there's a refrain, what they call it definitions, but it's really like a refrain that is repeated on every single foundation and every single contemplation that happens in this Satipatthana Sutta. And those four foundations are mindfulness of body, uh, mindfulness of feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, uh, feeling tones, felt sensation, that everything that hits our sense has a, a feeling tone to it, mindfulness of the mind, that we start observing the mind and the attitudes of the mind, and mindfulness of dhammas, that we contemplate the teachings of the Buddha and mindfulness. But in these four foundations of mindfulness, there, there's yeah this refrain that's repeated on each one with a certain attitude that we want to cultivate and practice with each of these foundations. So really, like kind of telling us it's not so much where you put your awareness, but how you put your awareness. And the way we want to put our awareness is, it says, free from desire and discontent in regard to the world. When contemplating the body, contemplating with a mind free from desire and discontent in regard to the world. When uh, contemplating the breath, feelings, the mind, do so with a mind free from desire and discontent in regard to the world. And I kind of have a love-hate relationship with this line. Desire and discontent, free myself from desire and discontent. Um, this word desire, free myself from desire makes me think that um, I really need to be apathetic, right? That I need to give up on my goals, give up on my, my uh, wishes, my dreams, because it's like sounds like, oh, the Buddha wants us to give up desire here. And that, that, that doesn't lead to much good with me, right? It, it leads me to be quite dismissive and quite depressed, honestly. And then discontent, giving up on discontent. For me, if I just use my average mind on this, it really turns into, I, like, I don't stand up for myself. Like, I turn into just a blob. Standing up for myself just doesn't happen, and I can get bulldozed over. So using this as a belief system tends to not really work. Buddhism isn't a belief system. It's a practice. There's a phrase, wisdom written down on paper isn't true wisdom. So what we want to do is not use this as a commandment for yourself from desire and discontent. It's instructions. And I think that makes a whole world of difference when we actually use this as a map, not as a rule. And then what happens is we start walking this map and seeing like, okay, what does that really mean? Can we step into freeing ourselves from desire and discontent in regard to the world. And then 
when we start reading these things, we study these things, we go to talks, and then the, these, these lessons start showing up for us. Now, some of you know that recently I went to Disney World. I go to Disney World. I used to go to Disney World all the time. I used to be an annual pass holder for Disney World. I used to live in Florida. I'd go all the time. And since COVID, uh, it's been the longest I've ever been away from Disney World. And this, you know, past couple of years, it's been quite isolating. It's, it's, uh, it's been rough on me, missing some of the places I love, like Florida and Disney World and all of this. So the wife and I planned a trip to go to Disney World, and I was very excited about this. But going back to my home, back to the magic, back to the happiness, back to the dreams and the imagination that I tell people that there's two sides to, sides to me. You know, there's the Buddhist one that acknowledges the dukkha and the suffering of the world. And then there's the, the Disney part of me, the Mickey Mouse part of me, that, you know, a dream is a wish your heart makes side of me. I think both of these are, are very important in my life. So taking time to go to Disney World where all my dreams and wishes can come true uh, is, is awesome. I love it. So I was quite thirsty to, to make a very magical experience at Disney World. And it's the 50th anniversary of Disney World, so it was like awesome. Got to go see all the 50th anniversary stuff. And at the end of the first day, they had a new fireworks show for the 50th anniversary where they have Cinderella Castle and they light it up all like amazingly with like the best fireworks show I've ever seen. And so we, we go and we wait for the fireworks show. There's a huge crowd there. As we're waiting for the fireworks show, there's one guy next to us, and he has a family, like a stroller with kids and all that. And he has those balloons, you know, those Mickey Mouse balloons. They look like Mickey Mouse, have the ears and all of that, and these Mickey Mouse balloons. He has three of them, and they're kind of like hitting us in the face, and they're like up in the air, so people can't see the fireworks. And somebody walks up to the guy and is like, hey man, like we're behind you. Do you think you could put the, the balloons down so we can see the, the fireworks? I'm like, oh, thank God somebody brought this up to this guy. And you know what he said? No. <laughs> he was like, no, I don't, I don't know if I can do that. And I was like, what the hell? What the hell's wrong with this guy? Try out this magical experience at Disney World. It's supposed to be beautiful and imagination and Dreams of wish your heart makes. I can't get that because this guy has these balloons. And then, and then to the right of me, so that's the left of me. I got Balloon Man. And to the right of me, I got like, like Sasquatch. This guy's like so tall. And he's like right in front of me, all tall. And, but not only is he like really tall, he can't sit still. And so like I go over to his left and then he moves to his left. And I go over to his right and then he moves to the right. I'm trying to get a view of the castle and he just won't sit still. And then at that point, I had to free myself from desire and discontent in regard to the world. It really helped me. No, I literally thought these things. That's how much of a geek I am in this stuff. I was like, oh yeah, it's, it's, I desire and discontent in regard to the world. I had such discontent for the balloon man next to me, you know? And I had such you know, desire to see the castle, the guys in front of me, you know. So when we look at these words, like this desire we're talking about here is really what we call like a craving, like a greed, that if only 
So how many times in life do we say if only so we can't really see what's in front of us? If only this tall guy would get out of my way, then I'd have a magical experience. If only these balloons were here, then I'd have a magical experience. And then it was like, stop. That this is actually perfect. Letting this moment be perfect. That everything in life is perfect. May not meet your preferences, of course, but everything is exactly the way it needs to be. And as soon as I can, I can just surrender into that, it, I can see the magic. So really, it's like too much desire and discontent in our mind has us miss the magic. Don't miss the magic. Set aside desire and discontent. See that even the things that are unpleasant, like the balloons or somebody tall, is a part of this, is a part of the beauty. And I think last time I was up here, I talked about Einstein says, either everything's a miracle or nothing's a miracle. So I want everything's a miracle. Guy with the balloons, miracle. Tall guy, miracle. A miracle, we could all be here and, and see this fireworks show. And I get that, like, you know, this fireworks show is amazing. It's awesome. Like, like. It's 100 feet high, and somebody dresses Tinkerbell goes flying out of the castle as they're shooting fireworks in the way. But really, I think putting this into our own practice is really important, that we don't necessarily need a fireworks show in front of us to see the magic, that we can sit with our breath, sit with our body, and see the magic that's happening here and now. Seeing it, like, isn't it amazing that we are living in this moment, in this body, all the things that have to come together for us to have this moment together, the breath, the body, the sounds, the culmination of all creation coming together right here. It's quite magical. But we can put our desires and discontent on top of these things. Oh, this body isn't magical. My back hurts. Now, set aside. See even the magic of pain. Oh, yeah. It's pretty amazing this body feels pain to let me know that there, there's something harming my body right now. Pretty amazing, right? And so it's all about this attitude that we put on to our mindfulness that helps us see the magic or not, right? And so as we expand out these desires and discontents in regard to the world, um, as I expanded out, I really want to talk about the five hindrances and the, the five hindrances are what hinder us to see the beauty in this moment, hinder us to see the magic. It, it's what's the killer, you know? Mara. Anybody know Mara? Anybody have Mara? Mara is, you know, loosely the Buddhist equivalent of the devil. But Mara isn't something we banish, isn't something we uh, judge, isn't something we, we hurt. Mara is something we see. I see you, Mara. When the Buddha was reaching his awakening and Mara was trying to kill that awakening, he said, I see you, Mara. So we're asked to see these parts of the mind and know those parts of the mind that will kill our practice. Mara literally translates as the killer. So hindrances kill our practice. So these five hindrances are greed, hatred, we have sloth and torpor, Restlessness and doubt. So these five things 
that it's nice to have this memorized list because it becomes easier to see like, oh, yeah, I'm hating the guy with the balloons. Hatred is in the mind. So we can just label that. Rather than getting wrapped up in the dramas and the dialogues of mine, hatred, I see you, hatred. Greed, oh, you know, if only, if only, if only, if only the tall guy wasn't in the way. Rather than just getting wrapped up into believing that thought, I can just use that label, oh, greed, grasping is in the mind. And so I want to tease these out. And these five hindrances, in a way that we'll remember them, because I like memorizing it so we can take the mind less personal and use these five labelings to depersonalize the mind. The first two are relational. The first two is, what's my relationship to this moment? Am I in a, a hateful relationship? Or am I in a greedy relationship? And the hateful, hateful, hate's a strong word, you know? But aversion, aversive, annoyed, it's the sense that my sense of well-being is reliant on this thing being gone. I need to get rid of this thing. And sense of well-being, too, that may be a little bit much, too. But when we're in those moments of just like, ugh, oh, you know, that get the balloons out of my fucking face. It's, oh, there's aversion in the mind. There's hate in the mind. And we don't want to make a moral judgment against the mind. That's what I'm saying. We don't want to banish Mara. We don't want to hate Mara. Hatred is not a piece through hatred. Hatred is a piece through love. So what we want to do is see it's totally impersonal. Your mind thinks hateful thoughts. That's what happens. Every single human has a so-called hateful thought. It's human biology. If we did not have hate in our mind, we probably wouldn't evolve this far as a human species. So just because you have a hateful thought doesn't mean you're original and unique. But what it does mean is we need to observe it and know, should I go down that route and maybe pause with the hatred and see the impersonal nature of hatred instead of reactively jumping into believing every hateful thought we experience. And then when we do so, we can actually uh, meet it with care, one, meet it with love, presence, what does hateful, hateful thought feel like? And oftentimes, hate is just response to pain. Painful experience. I hate this painful experience. So that's where care comes in and be compassionate to the very thing that we're hating. And replacing it. Replacing it with loving kindness. So bringing that kindness, that kind awareness. And I did when it was the balloon man. As he had balloons hitting me and the guy asked him, to you know, maybe pull down the balloons so we can see. I, I turned and looked at his family. You know, have presence. Looked with the family. The guy was having a hard time. He had all these kids here, and one more thing was just too much for this guy. And he did try. He goes, "Okay, can you hold on to your this balloon to the kid?" And the kid was rambunctious. He'd been there all day in the sun, and it's the end of the night, and they just want to get a, you know vacation and look at the fireworks. And now they have these fucking balloons and they can't put them anywhere and it, it was just like a part of me softened into that and, and, and goes yeah this guy's trying to show his family a good time and he, he bought balloons he thought the kids would like balloons <laughs> you know so a little bit of actually uh, helping my experience out by meeting it with now the balloons are actually something that um, you know, helps the magic rather than um, gets in the way of the magic 
right? That it's like, oh, now I'm enjoying this moment with this family that's just trying to have a, a magical experience. So nice. So sometimes these, these, these thoughts, the, the hateful thought can be the mindfulness bell to go, okay, what else? How else can I meet this experience? Oh, maybe kindness. Maybe I try kindness on and see how that works. Yeah. And then uh, greed is the next one we're talking about. Greed is that sense that my sense of well-being is reliant on this thing being here that isn't here, right? That it can be so large and small. Anticipation. I'm anticipating the fireworks. I'm anticipating the next thing. I'm in meditation. I'm anticipating the bell. Can't he ring the bell? My, my ass hurts in this chair. Can't, I just can't wait to pivot. Can't wait to be done. Just ring the bell, you know? And we get really thirsty towards that, the craving along with that. And as I was in this moment of, of craving to see this show, I've been through so much. I mean, we understand that craving sometimes is a mask to our own pain. And I've been isolated for so long. I've been away from my friends, been away from people I love. And I just need a, a nice moment on vacation watching fireworks. But this tall guy's here. And it's just like, if only this tall guy wasn't here, I can really enjoy these fireworks. And it's like, well, okay, noticing greed in the mind. I'm grasping for a special experience. And then when we, when we notice greed, maybe we can switch it, switch it over to... Uh, generosity. Be generous with my, my space. And really, it's kind of funny because the whole time I'm here like going like, oh, I was too isolated, I'm too lonely, but somebody's in my way now. But it's like, can I be generous with my space? And that's what I did. Oh, I want to share this space with this man. I want to share this space with all the people he's with. I want to share this space with everybody around me. And being generous with my space and generous with my, my fun generous with my time, and, and I was with everybody. I know it became so nice to share this moment with an open heart of generosity with everybody around me. And those are the two relational, greed and hatred that we say, aversion and craving in the, in the first two hindrances. The next two are about energy. Um, we have sloth and torpor, and restlessness. So the first one, sloth and torpor. Uh, anytime I hear somebody go through these hindrances, they say sloth and torpor like it's something we say. But <laughs> but there's no better word for it. Sloth. I always think of Goonies. You all know Goonies. Hey, you guys, sloth, right? Um, but really, this is like a dullness of our energy. It's like kind of like a checking out. You know, I'm, I'm sure this happens in meditation where you just like kind of nodding off because you just kind of got tired of meditating, really. And I'd like to use the word laziness sometimes, but I feel like it's been weaponized in our capitalistic system, right? especially to the working class, like blaming people, you're poor, you're lazy. And, and I, don't, I, don't, I think that's like too loaded these days now. So it's, it's not quite a laziness in that way, like blaming, but really it is an unmotivated state that where we check out and just give up. And it leads to a too little of energy. And in my own life, really, like on an extreme sloth and torpor, depression, right? Where life just becomes too exhausting. Life just becomes too much. And it's like, I'm so stressed. 
fuck it, I give up. Ugh. And we leave this give up state in the sloth and torpor. But really the antidote to this can be a myriad of things, but really finding a, a helpful motivation, especially in meditation. There's a story I love to tell about Ajahn Brahm, and I'm sure some of you have already heard it, about how when he first became a Buddhist monk in Thailand, he, uh, they would stay up so late meditating, and he would be dozing off meditating. But, you know, it'd be like 1 a.m., and they're still meditating, and he's, like, falling asleep. But he was like, oh, I was back home in England, and I'd stay up at the bars partying until 1 a.m., having a blast. He said, I, I watched the doors, and the doors got me excited, and I got to see this awesome rock and roll. And he's like, well, now I'm in Thailand, and now I'm, like, bored and sleepy and unmotivated. But if we can use our refuges, right, and use our... our devotional practice to the Buddha, to the Dharma, to the Sangha, devotion to the Buddha, if we really put our all into resting in the possibility for awakening, that this long tradition, 2,600 years, dating back to a guy named Siddhartha Gautama, that found this freedom from suffering, and he was just a man, he was just a person, you can do this too. And even falling into so many people, like I said earlier, paying homage to the people that came before, before us, like Deepa Ma. I love Deepa Ma. And Deepa Ma would get up early in the morning, meditate for four hours. And, and she'd meditate another four hours in the middle of the day, another four hours at night. She was meditating ridiculous amounts of time. And she got to a place where she would only sleep four hours a night, too. So... Um, she, she, she was uh, quite dedicated. And now I think that, oh, you can get to a place in your meditation where you only sleep four hours a night. Think of how many things I can do. I can do so much work. And I just, but that's not going to get us to a place. This is a, a, a lesser burn that will get us to a place where we can be as diligent, maybe possibly as deep a ma. And really letting our heart have that kind of sweet spot. You know, when I, when I see pictures of the Deepa Ma, it softens me. When I see a, a statue of the Buddha, it, gives me, it inspires me. When, when, I, when I think about my teachers, uh, sometimes it really lifts me up. So really having this almost sentiment, for lack of a better term, to the lineage really helps me energize myself to know it is possible. Freedom from suffering, awakening in whatever sense that means to you totally possible and let that lighten you up a little bit for some smooth motivation not a not a excitable motivation but a, a soothing burn of motivation and then on the other end the next hindrance we talk about restlessness it's too much energy having this balance out that we want to find a middle energy restlessness in meditation is, is terrible isn't it? it we we just want to get up and run we want to go and, and this restlessness can really be like things like worry and stress. And we just have too much energy. So how do we even out this energy, right? We do want to have a sense of energy. In, in, in Pali, the, the original teachings of the Buddha, we have this word virya. Virya means energy. But in this virya, the root of it is uh, vira, vira, which means like hero, like a heroic energy. Right, and I think if we have a like a really heroic energy, a dedicated energy, we can fall into our own intentions. 
Like, why do you meditate? What is your goal and aspirations in meditation? And like I said in the meditation earlier, this, this is a generous practice. And if you reflect on like how good this is, how generous this is, then we don't just do this for ourselves. Use this heroic energy. Use this as a benefit to all beings. Think, oh, if I meditate on loving kindness, imagine how many people throughout my week are going to love me and, and they're going to have a good time around me. And think, oh, everybody that I come contact this week, I want to make sure they know they are loved and cared for. That energy. Not too much energy can be, oh no, you know, oh no, fear, 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 oh no. And we're stress and fear are the same. So sometimes we can use this restlessness and soothe it down with some easefulness, some gentleness. And then the last hindrance, I'm just going over these slightly. The last hindrance is the, the one that they say just kills it all. The last flavor of Mara that the Buddha had to face, and maybe the most difficult to see, is the hindrance of doubt. And doubt can be so tricky. Doubt is very loud in my mind sometimes. Doubt in my meditation practice, doubt in Buddhism or whatever we call it, doubt in people, doubt in my teachers. So much doubt in myself though, really. Shame, something wrong with me. I'm not worth it, I can't do it. So this doubt really, it can kill us. It could take us off the path completely if we start believing it. And so having that short label, that one label for doubt is so simple. I had one earlier today. I, I, I've had many teachers in my life and it, it just kind of just happened all at once in the past couple months where I just wasn't getting along with a couple of my teachers. And I'm like, maybe this whole Buddhism thing isn't cut out for me. Maybe I need to go hang out with the Hare Krishnas. They're happy. I saw some Hare Krishnas last week and they're doing their kirtan, dancing, and having a good time. They have those cool haircuts where they just have like it all shaved and they have that thing. And like, I like the, you know, Bhagavad Gita. I like, you know, Srila Prabhupada. I, I, I think Buddhism, stupid. Everybody's still talking about suffering and blah, blah, blah. Like, I want, I, maybe, I, maybe I'm done with Buddhism. Hare Krishna. Hare Hare Krishna. And, and it's like, it's like, Oh, doubt, doubt, doubt is in the mind. Doubt is in the mind. So just simply seeing that. And then, you know, shame on the other end. Not only doubt in the practice, but doubt in myself. Like, where we, you know, this whole, you know, happiness thing is meant for people that aren't as fucked up as me. I am, like, just too fucked up for this, right? And then even just noting shame as self-doubt. And so these are the five things that we want to use in our meditation practice, but not only in our meditation practice, like I said, in our day-to-day -day life. Don't miss the magic, where the magic's internal, external, or both. Uh, it, everything's either a miracle or, or every, everything's a miracle or not, right? So that we can see the magic, see the miracle when we see the hindrances. We probably will have these hindrances in us for our whole lives. When the Buddha reaches awakening, and Mara was attacking him, after his awakening, Mara still showed up. So even in the Buddha's mind, he still had Mara showing up, hatred and greed and doubt and 
restlessness. That he's, I see you, I see you, I see you. So these are the things we want to see. Not judgmentally, but discerning, really. Oh, should I go that path down that hatred? Or maybe I should try compassion. Should I go down that path of greed? Or maybe I should try some generosity right now. We gain a lot of free will when we actually use mindfulness. And mindfulness of the mind, seeing the mind states. Because without mindfulness, there is no free will. Without mindfulness, we're just following whatever this mind says. We're following into um, hating people with balloons and, and hating tall people, right? But with mindfulness, it goes, oh, that's what the mind is doing. I don't have to follow down that right now. And I can get some free will to act a different way. So greed, hatred, sloth and torpor, restlessness and doubt. Try to memorize those. And as you go through your dates, label your mind. Is, is that a hateful thought? Is that a greedy thought? Not, this isn't a moral judgment. It's human to have these things. Right? But live beyond human survival. Find this magic. Okay?